Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this part of my conversation with artist and writer, Mariam Monalisa Gharavi, she talks about her recurring explorations of the limits of knowledge. I ask if she ever feels misunderstood as an artist and as a person. Is there an undercurrent of depression or pessimism in her art? And does she feel that the world is ending? So, I don't know which piece of art this is. It might be a little bit of a video, but it's like a man and a woman, and their head is like wrapped in like sheets. And I don't know anything else about this, but I just saw like one frame, and I realized that there was like a mixture of intense feelings that I felt immediately, and I could not name a single one of them. And, but that image itself had like this very So you have to realize that you're talking to some guy from STEM. We have had like a little bit of back and forth about this. And uh, so for me, my my work is mostly to think in very explicit terms and try to communicate it very explicitly. When I do science or whatever, it has to be reproducible. It has to be falsifiable. I have to be so detailed that a different person knows exactly what I'm talking about, the exact numbers, and then they should be able to take my exact perspective so I have to really like crystallize everything and so when I see something like that and I just get this feeling a lot of questions come to my mind one is this is maybe not such a precise thing the next person could feel a different mixture of feelings and the other thing is that there's something new for me to see something which communicates a feeling, but it does not explicitly say, this is the idea in my head, this is what you're supposed to feel. And so I'm like very intrigued by that. And so I'm basically trying to like beat around the bush, but I guess my question is, a lot of the times when you're making a piece of art, are you concerned about communicating the exact ideas that you have in your head to the person who's experiencing the art? Or a lot of the times, are you just like, I'm just going to give you a feeling. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, dimension of it. I think, well, yeah, I'm trying to think how does this sit with deliver the information at the yeah, right yeah. time. I should also just add real quickly a couple of things that I have seen of yours. They're like video projects and things like that. I feel like I can't exactly tell what the idea is but I get a mixture of like almost articulatable feelings that I'm getting but like you know like I am definitely getting like a lot of feelings and I I, I can try to like word them there's something anti-authoritarian about it something like very like challenging and questioning Um, but it's not always like very literal so when I saw that I was like uh, my mind seems to be struggling a little bit to to grasp this very tangibly. So that's where my question is coming from. Yeah. It's interesting to put this uh, alongside what you said about STEM and yeah. the idea that, you know, you get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think uh, defamiliarizing the familiar is bound to bring up some emotive feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing for sure. I think if there's anything that unites what I do, it's on and around the question of the limits of knowledge. Uh, gaining knowledge, uh, feeling an intellectual insatiability, being naturally very curious. All of those things may be true, but I'm always thinking about the asymptotic limit of of knowledge as such. Uh, I think the great religious traditions have also thought of this. Uh, in fact, one of the works in the recess space, one of the works connected to life of Muhammad was a wall decal in which I repeated in Arabic, um, knowers of the seen and the unseen, knowers of the seen and the unseen, 10 times, no, excuse me, nowhere, the singular 10 times, because that attribution of God as the knower of the seen and the unseen appears exactly 10 times in the Quran. And mm-hmm. you could go to Buddhist conceptual conceptualizations of knowledge, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Jewish mystic, on and on and on. And there's this conception of God as the all knowing. Mm-hmm. And if so, so if there is a divine or a creator that is quote, all knowing sees the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible, what does that say about us? What are we? And that is definitely an impetus for the, the, the limits of knowledge that I care so much about less than like, I know in art school, I remember a professor chastising me for, there's not like a, a traceable icon. Like he's like, why can't I see this thing all throughout your work as though, Mm. you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I don't know what kind of artist I was supposed to be according to this person, but it was like, wanting it to be easy like just Mm. repeat your (laughs) repeat this signature thing always so i know it's yours and it's interesting what what that says about the professionalization of art what that says about the product and commodification of art Mm. Uh, and i'm deathly uninterested in that uh yeah but in terms of the work that you're talking about it's it's a longer work it's 12 minutes film video called love script And in it, I had a woman and a man recreate six scenes from cinema, six love scenes from cinema in which there is a kiss. And that kiss happens through medical masks, uh, veils, and other kinds of screens. So there's this kind of blockage to the act. And I should say that even though like they're wearing medical masks in some of the scenes, Uh, This happened in 2017, so preceding, you know, obviously the COVID pandemic. Um, Yeah, I I think, what is it that you feel? Or what is it that is supposed to be contained here? I mean, I would hope not any one thing, you know. I think to expect to elicit one kind of response would be incredibly narrow, narrow narrow-minded of an artist to do. Um... One thing that I do think might separate art from, say, science, and this is not my opinion or fact, this is just something I'm, I've am i heard and I think makes a lot of sense, is that in science, you have a hypothesis and you set out to prove it. And in artistic work, you often are working with the content as it is and then develop a hypothesis about it. 
And I, I would say what happens if, I, I think maybe both of those things can also be true. Sometimes, and I've done a, a lecture on this, and I'm sure the video is out there somewhere on YouTube or something uh, called Theory of Betrayal, in which I delineate the task of the artist as needing to be betrayed by her work somehow. That yeah. the artwork is not really finished until then. I think then. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. This idea that, yeah. let's say I have an idea, a vision for art love script. You know, mm -hmm. I, I this was a work that I had access to a cinematographer, uh, you know, several people helping me on camera, everything before love script I shot myself. Um, all of these resources, actors, like good ones, um, audition processes, all of that. Okay, well, what happens when you have the thing you you got? Like you you think you think it's one thing. You run the experiment, right? A repetition or restaging of iconic love scenes from cinema. Okay, so we did it, and we did it as best as we could with the funds and the resources and the integrity that we had. Mm. Now, what happens? Mm. And that I think does jive with whoever said this that in art you do it and then there's the hypothesis in my case and i certainly don't wish to kind of elevate myself here in any way i'm just being really honest and and real i and i think this is also part of having made that work within a within an art school framing at the time um i did very much have a hypothesis uh, meaning that I was thinking about the role of the face in our society. Again, this is 2017, not 2020. Mm -hmm. Some of these ideas should, I should go back to them and see if they, how they hold up now when I wear masks 75% of my time outside. Um, still, uh, I wanted to ask the question of if in covering the face, you elicit some kind of response in people what does it mean about the face then? What do, what is this? What does it mm. mean neuro neurobiologically? Because we know that we have certain processes in our mind that uh, you know pick up on the faces of others. Like we've evolved that way. What does it mean sociologically? Uh, so I was reading Deleuze and Guattari on the quote "terror of the face," which Deleuze says it, it is terrorful because it cannot be represented. It can only be repeated when you have a face covered in public, for example. Um, there's something terrifying about it is, is his point. Um, so mm. and on and on and all of the isms and all of the I, all of the things behind just one thing. Just what happens if the face is not readily available to scan yeah. by a human or by a machine like you a facial recognition system? You know, Daft Punk. Yeah, they had they wear these visors. And whatever they have to say scrolls past the visors. It's like these electronic music artists. And I don't know, they just maintain this public persona where nobody has seen their faces. But they, they go to like shows and whatever, and they wear this visor. And whatever they have to say, I don't know how they're doing it. But the words like scroll past their visors, that, that's how you know what they're saying. And I don't know. I just yeah, I remember that. thinking about the celebrity use of covered faces, and this isn't recent, like with mm -hmm. Kanye West. This is like way back. Like I remember seeing images of Michael Jackson 
Mm. Uh, wrapping veils around his and his children's faces at airports. And it's a, it's a little different, right? Because in that instance, you know who it is, but their mm. face is occluded from you. Mm. So this this idea of divulging information or withholding information, I think, mm-hmm. is really at the heart of some of the things I think about in The Limits of Knowledge. And this particular you know, body of work, um, for example, actually speaking of STEM, one of the works, I think the longest thing I've ever made so far, it's a little over 50 minutes, was a biographical profile of a woman, mm. um, an M- a former MIT graduate student uh, who has Bell's palsy and woke up one day and half of her, I think the film, the film is called Eve's Face, half of her face, facial muscles degenerated and were no longer active. And she was like drinking coffee and coffee would spill out the other side. And, you know, she's just sort of like sitting on her bed with her boyfriend going like, what's happening to me? And, and, uh, we met in a really interesting way. I, I answered the call for a ride share, uh, to a meditation retreat. And she, I lived in Cambridge at the time. And so did Eve. And when I was driving us, um, I could only see a profile of her face. So I could see the quote, good side, meaning the, the, the side that was not affected by palsy. And she's telling me her life story on this three hour drive. And I thought like, that was the germination of like, wait a minute, this is strange. I, here I am, I'm making a body of work on the face. And I just happened to meet this woman who is no longer in full control of hers. And she's a young woman. She's beautiful. She, you know, this, this just happened to her. And that ended up being, you know, an additional work alongside Love Script. But, you know, it was uh, serendipitous. But also, you know, when you know that feeling when you're you're obsessed by an idea mm. or you know what you're kind of looking for and it and just it keeps showing on up. Showing up. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. if I said yellow car and you went yeah. outside and all of a sudden you've never seen more yellow cars. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. in this case, it was a, a beautiful serendipity. And, and I really give so much credit to Eve for being such a willing participant in the video installation I ended up creating, which actually I don't think I could ever recreate. It was a very mm-hmm. narrow room. Mm-hmm. And as a viewer, you're almost in, you, you're in, you go in this room on your left and your right are different angles of Eve's face as she's talking about her face. It's like the face is telling on itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're wedged between it. Yeah. And the average time a viewer spends on a video work in fine art spaces is roughly six seconds. And her, her telling mm. of her face was so compelling mm. that I, you know, I had a clicker and I had assistance and also reports from people that a 52 minute film, people had ended up staying upwards of 26 minutes in this narrow space. Uh, and I think it's due to what a compelling telling, what a compelling autobiography she did of herself and you're looking at the thing that is no longer supposed to be functioning, telling itself on itself. There's something in continental philosophy that mm. I also grapple with where, you know, when you turn the doorknob, you don't really, the doorknob is invisible and you just go about your day. You turn the door and open it and move on. You only notice it when it's no longer working, mm. when the, the it, it's unlatched or something, mm. it's locked or whatever. It's broken. The handle's broken. 
And I, I certainly don't wish to say, I, I certainly don't wish to have an ableist argument about this person, but I think her, her willingness and her incredible consciousness that she is both her body and not her body, she is both her face and not her face at all, and her telling of it, I think, brought people in in maybe some of the ways that you articulated about an emotional response hmm. to what's happening even though she's sitting there dispassionately giving yeah. an autobiography of her face. Yeah. I'm very intrigued by the way that your mind works. Like there's something very, so, you know, when I, when I meet a person, I think this happens quite naturally. I meet a person, I'm trying to get to know them. My mind is trying to simulate their mind. And for some people it's incredibly difficult for me. I'm like, wow, all of this is just, unanticipated, unexpected, unpredictable, whoa. And I'm getting that feeling a lot. So I think, yeah, it's like, I'm like, wow. That's why a lot of this question, like, where are your ideas come from and whatever. Um, I have a bit of a personal question and you can skip this one if you want. Both, uh, both as an artist and as a person, do you ever feel like your feelings or your perspective are misunderstood? Yeah, I think in in art, when I've had the advantage to hear back what people think about something, whether that's in what's called a crit, like a presentation or a critique, or people write you or something like that, then sometimes the misunderstanding can be productive. Mm. And I don't know that I've ever been totally angered by a misunderstanding, although never say never. I've never taken it personally. Again, I prefer to be betrayed by the work, meaning mm -hmm. what happens when it exists in the world without me. So I do see that part of it, that completion as a part of the artistic process. I'm sh I think in my personal life, it's been much more painful to be misunderstood, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's painful to be misunderstood. I think it's painful because we, or I could use the word I, I like to think of myself as um, transparent with the people I love and upfront and to feel like your transparency or your, let's say your vision of radical honesty isn't engaged with or isn't taken in the way you meant it can certainly be painful. Um, I don't know that that necessarily gets easier, but maybe I'm becoming a lot less bothered. I mm. know I am. I'm mm. a lot less attached to it and, um, you know, a lot more willing to bless and release. Yeah. And do you feel like you ever, like people ever find you like too complex to understand? Oh, I've definitely gotten that kind of feedback. And mm. I think... Sometimes it's in the past, it's been hurtful because, you know, I don't know if you have this experience, but some children are like told that they're excessive mm -hmm. or they talk too much. They think too much. They're too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very um, damaging idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a damaging practice for children. And then what you like spend your life hiding or you spent your life effacing something. And as an adult, I'm trying to think where that's been true for me. If I'm being honest, I think it comes much more from men 
And not even necessarily in a romantic context, but I don't know. Is that true? A lot of my, I mean, I, I collaborate with all kinds of people, but yeah, I would say so. I would say that, um, I would say that's happened, but I've, I've, I'm much less likely these days to let it stand in my way. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, do you feel like there's an undercurrent of depression or pessimism or hopelessness in the way that you portray like the world through art? I hope not. I mean, I always think on, um, Antonin Gramsci's famous dictum that optimism of the will, pessimism of the mind. Do I have that right? You're going to have to Google and fact check me if I have it right. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think a certain degree of optimism is necessary to do the kind of work you want to carry out in the world on top of, you know, just being a person who's living. Mm -hmm. And I do think, I, I want to say that I feel uncompromising in my vision. Mm -hmm. In other words, if there's anything radical, I, I would like to hope that it's my artistic vision that's radical. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I want to be able to look at things unflinchingly. Yeah. And that might, maybe that comes across or has a sort of feeling tone mm -hmm. that is negating. But, you know... I think of it more as uncompromising and yeah. I'm not really quite all there yet. I mean, I, I've said this before. I really admire Pasolini, mm. the late Italian film director, poet, novelist, teacher, journalist, among others. And I think he was also seen, I'm not comparing myself to Pasolini, but he's someone that I, um, think of a lot in terms of being able to do all of the things he did under a fascist Italian regime and be an open homosexual. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly don't agree with all of his ideas, but uh, he lived a very kind of stringent, um, critical Catholicism. But what I do really appreciate was his anti-consumerism. And for an Italy at that time, that was really looking to capital accumulation mm -hmm. for its breathing through fascism. Uh, in Portuguese, yeah. it's called desabafá, like moments of respiration amidst fascism. Uh, I'm sure like a figure like Pasolini, who was so uncompromising in his objection to the commodification of everyday life, uh, came across as quite negating and... I, I always think like how the world that we have is so much more complex. It's so, it has such a different reach globally. Mm -hmm. It's so much more interconnected and there's such a possibility. Well, what does it mean to be unflinching or uncompromising in that world? Mm -hmm. uh, is I, I often think I'm not doing enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I feel like when I look at your work, it's not easy <laughs> And, uh, like, it's this, uh, some kind of, like, a dark tonality. And sometimes I'm like, man, yeah, shit is fucked. <laughs> so I'm trying to understand if there's, like, a bottom line where you're like, nah, it's going to get better, you know? Um, 
You know, according to the Hindu mythology or cosmology, this is supposed to be the last of the four aeons of the universe, the last and the most corrupt, and then the world ends and it starts again. Um, and I've been hearing and sort of uh, talking a lot about apocalypse with people, especially with the climate change and things are just getting so exponential. Like the human impact on the planet, no matter how fucked up shit we did, it was not at this scale. But everything is just getting like faster and faster and faster. And our impact is getting like exponential. So I don't know even if you realize, oh man, shit is fucked. If you're going to have enough time to like put the brakes on. I'm sure other generations have felt it too for other reasons. So oh, the world is ending. We're ending the world. So maybe we're not the first generation. We're just feeling it for different reasons. I can't really make up my mind. But this question keeps coming up in my head. Do you, do you feel like the world is ending? Well, this question that you asked before that about are we the first generation to feel it? Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and make the statement that, you know, I don't want to sort of say millenn mill millennials are so special. Yeah, we're special <laughs> because we've lived through four recessions in our working lives and we can't. I don't, I can't talk about Gen Z because Gen Z is just entering its working years. It's the years mm. in a labor market, but we have data on us, you know, mm. we're very self-conscious of who we are as wage slaves, as workers in the world. And also the ease of with which you get commodities, the ease, this, the relative ease, let's say, right. Um, we can talk about the end of fossil fuels and also, and also Amazon has never done better. Mm. You know, where do all the Amazon boxes go? Right. Mm. Um, I think many ideas are ending. I think it's the death knell of many ideas and that we're living through a very painful and regressive transition and response to the end of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, things I don't like to sort of dwell on the word fascism and use it you know outside of a kind of historical understanding of it but many things can be true at the same time uh things can feel really boring and monotonous and also very dystopic mm. you know I'm just thinking I don't know if you have this visual in your mind but like you know those benches that they create and design so homeless people can't sleep or encamp in them? That's what I mean, of like boring, mm. dystopic, ugly, functionally insane, mm. and also uh, a deterrent for human care. Mm. I think maybe the thing that made me feel this question of apocalypse, I don't think this is just me, was 2020 just made things so clear there was this and and it like think back on that like where you were you know march 2020 right like there was this feeling i had of productive and reproductive capacity like suddenly things stopped suddenly the animals came out and nature is healing uh suddenly you know the gears of like oil prices were at a historic high um, the oil industry announced that it was going to crash, whatever that means. Um, and also, 
there was a resurgence of reproductive care. I don't just mean, you know, reproduction. I mean things like mutual aid. I mean neighborhood <laughs> neighborhood cooperatives. I mean uh, a, a sense of understanding that we're all in this human muck together. And I feel that the pendulum is swinging much the other way, that the productivity and the expectation of cultures of productivity has is higher and higher. And the capacity for us to understand our own reproductive care is lower and lower. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you are like a, mo a mother without maternal leave or care in the United States, whether you're, you know, a gig worker who doesn't have a stable place to use the bathroom, whether you're an Amazon worker whose muscular and tendon exertions are measured by the company and kept as part of your portfolio. These the collapse of the collapse of a reproductive understanding of who we are as human societies is something that I feel is an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And and yet we've never been more productive as human beings. We've never, you know, what is it like unemployment is lower than it ever has been. And no one saw that coming. The Fed can't explain it, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. to say nothing of things like the collapse of societies where we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis in, in recorded history, um, we don't even talk about that, right? We don't mm. talk about the the migrant journeys that have uh, essentially created a, um, you know, unwritten massacres of people. So when taken that way, it can be very, very low. You can mm -hmm. feel really depressed about it. And yet, you know, like I said, optimism, optimism of the will, um, to continue to defamiliarize these things that feel like the waters we're all swimming in and to make them unfamiliar to us and to make ourselves see them all over again, to be able to, I think we're living in a time of deep consciousness raising where people are, you know, more aware, right? These are not like ideas baked into some kind of academic understanding. My understanding of gender equity, for example, doesn't come from some kind of academic machine. It comes from lived experience. Um, and yeah, I don't know. We're, we're living through something that remains to be written, but why not us? Like, why not be the ones to help write it, you know? Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining Mona Lisa and me today in the Room of Lives. In the next part, we talk about serendipity, its relation to Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious and collective and intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm.